Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and thank you for listening, subscribing, and if you're on YouTube, watching. This is The Rugby Dungeon. I'm JB, and today I am absolutely thrilled to welcome my guest, Chris Boyd. But before I do that, remember you can find us on Twitter at Rugby Podcast. Me, at Jay Beardmore, Tim, at Cocker, and also download Egg Chasers, which I'm sure you already do, out every Monday without fail. So, with all that done, all the housekeeping squared away, here he is. This is Chris Boyd. Do get uh, So, Chris. Box of fluffies, thank you. <laughs> uh, tell me, uh, what have you been up to today? And what does a DOR get up to when you've got a game this Friday night? Uh... We 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 run a well. The Premiership clubs generally fit into two groups. Um, for a Friday game, we we would have Tuesday off, so we run Monday, have Tuesday off, train double train Wednesday or single train Wednesday actually Thursday. Uh, so today's been full on. We've been in since about half past seven this morning, and so the boys have had gym and meetings and and unit training and team training. So it's a pretty full day. So uh, I guess everyone who will be listening to this, because I have mostly Premiership listeners and UK listeners, will know you as the DOR of the Saints. Um, if there's anyone o- overseas listening, they'll probably know you as a uh, champion of champion of Super Rugby. Uh, can you just give me a bit about give me a bit about your background? Uh, where did you play? Were you from a rugby family? And how do you end up in coaching? Uh, played badly. Uh, fell into coaching from a from an amateur situation, where I coached my amateur club at home for a, for a long period of time, and then that seemed to go all right, and got asked to to work with the Wellington development side, um, and then the Wellington. Uh, Lions, which is the first level of professionalism and the, was then the Mighty Ten Cup now, uh, the NPC, not sure what they call it now. Mm-hmm. Um, did a stint with Super Rugby with the Sharks in South Africa in 2008-2009. Uh, went to the World Cup in 2011 with Tonga. Went back to Wellington and as the head coach for the Wellington Lions from 2012 to 2014. Did the Hurricanes from 2014 to 2018. Uh, we, we had a pretty good run. We 
won won our first championship and made two finals. Uh, got knocked out in two semi-finals, so we got in playoffs for four years, and then came here to to Saints. And it was my fourth year here with the Saints, so I've been pretty lucky, really, to string nearly twenty years of full-time professional coaching together. Uh, so that's a, a little bit unusual. Yeah, really- normally we all, we're normally we're all waiting to get sacked. <laughs> well, yeah, and also it's unusual that you came from an amateur background. So. What made you want to become a coach as as an amateur? Is it always just a love for the game? And then you wanted to you know just to continue on from your playing career? Uh, mate, I I lived in the UK with my wife, um, you know, and and you know, and we went home when I was thirty, uh, and we decided I wanted to play again just to finish up, but ended up um, getting injured in the in the first game back actually, and the guy who was coaching the team said to me. Why don't you, why don't you help me out? Uh, and the rest is history. Really, I never went back again. So uh, I never had any ambition to coach. I just enjoyed my local club. Uh, was only five minutes push bike from home at that stage. Um, we were starting a family, and we had, uh, you know, at one stage I think we had four kids under five. I was running a local business and trying to run a rugby club as well and I'd gone back to university to do some more study so life was pretty busy yeah uh, but it was great I really enjoyed uh, coaching helping out down at the rugby club was my release really and and I just sort of enjoyed it and it just sort of kept going so yeah what were you what were you studying in university uh well historically I trained as a as a, as a pharmacist uh, in the early days, so I was a, a, a drug dealer, <laughs> um, and I'd gone back to uh, Otago University and was doing a diploma in sports studies. Um, you know, I had a bit bit of an interest around, um, you know, oh, they had lots of different modules really, but mm. but it was uh, just something that 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 appealed: exercise physiology and nutrition and. Um, you know, there was some coaching modules in there and stuff. It was just something that was interesting that I was doing in my spare time. So, yeah. You know, as a pharmacist, and I know a few pharmacists, it's fairly comfortable living. What then made you decide, well, actually, that no, that's not for me. Because coaching, even professionally, isn't always the best paid job, particularly when you're at the bottom end of professionalism. What made you decide, well, actually, no, I'm going to give this coaching lock a go? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think the, the only time I haven't coached, in that period of time was I had a couple of years when I went and worked for high, high performance sport, New Zealand, uh, working with coaches in a lot of different sports. Uh, when I came back from actually before I went to South Africa, uh, for a couple of years. And I think it's the same for all sports. There's this massive leap of faith to go from participation where it's amateur and you're just doing it as your hobby and you enjoy mm. doing it to try to make a living out of it. And it wasn't, it wasn't an, an intentional um, leap of faith, but I, I wasn't really enjoying the work that I was doing. Um, and I was just enjoying doing that more. And you're right. Uh, you sort of sit there and think, you know, you've got a nice secure situation Um Am I am I prepared to jump out of that and take the risk in, into an environment where 
you know, most coaches are contracted for short periods of time. Mm. Um, certainly we started as a, as a shamateur or, you know, part-time coaches. The, the pay was almost non-existent, really. It was um, just covering your expenses. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a, for players, uh, administrators and coaches alike, that sort of leap of faith to go out of civilian street and into coaching is, is, is a bit of a hurdle. Yeah, so I guess another angle of this is every coach I can think of, I mean, there might be a few exceptions, but I can't think of one off, off the top of my head. But most of them have played sort of top-level rugby, and because of their credentials as a player, people go, OK, well, you know, this guy must know his stuff, and then they go through, go, go through the coaching ranks. Coming from the amateur ranks, did you ever feel the need to prove your knowledge somewhat? Was that just something you were very comfortable with? Uh, it certainly depends on what company you're in, but I, I think in the early days, and I think it's true for, for, for most coaches, I think, you know, when you're working with people in, in any area, the thing that's most important is the credibility of, of, you know, what's coming out of your mouth. So mm. do, do you know your stuff? So, um, I was pretty diligent in the early days of making sure that, uh, I understood the, the real core technical and tactical components of, of rugby as a sport, how it worked and, you know, what what had an impact and everybody has a different theory and idea and philosophy on how it should be played. But I became a real student of the game really and studied it pretty hard and I think a lot of people get that, as you say, ex-players who have played at a high level I have an understanding. What I, what I have found over a long period of time dealing with seeing a lot of ex-players that I'd coach myself now going into coaching, they generally are, are, are experts in a very small part of the game, but but not a lot of them have a a very broad understanding of the the whole the whole game. Um, so that's why I think you find you know ex-high performing players in the first instance, make very good technical coaches. So, they, you know, they're either a, a yeah. good line-out specialist or a scrum specialist or very good at backs attack because that's the area that they've become very competent and comfortable with. Uh, and I think that for those guys, their development and growth is to understand um, how that fits into the bigger picture of the game and probably be more importantly... Uh, that that have the credibility of the knowledge, but is the delivery of that message the the right thing? Is it is their relationship with the player? I mean, it becomes now down to um, the delivery of of that message and and the uptake of that message. So there's a there's a there's a lot more sort of down the teaching, facilitating sort of end as as well as the knowledge. So yeah, just sort of. How it goes. Do you think then your modern DOR now, rather than being a specialist coach, because I've always thought that the way rugby is going, it's funny you mention that, it's going to be about specialist coaches, your specialist defence coach, your specialist breakdown coach, you know, some teams have a scrum coach and a line-out coach. I heard of one team in the Premiership that has a line-out coach in the air and a line-out coach on the ground. So do you think the role of a DOR is not necessarily to have the specialist skills, but to be a generalist? Because if that's so, that's quite a hard thing to find, I would say. Uh, I think the transition from once you're into coaching, I think the transition from technical specialist coaching into 
um, program management and facilitation and running a program, I think is a very different skill. And some people are exceptionally good at it and some people are, are, are very poor at it. So I've worked with guys that are unbelievably good at their area. But if you ask them to put a program together that took needs into account of everybody, it, they just wouldn't have a chance of even starting. Yeah. So I think it's a very different, I think it's a very different skill. And, you know, even some of the, some of the greatest coaches have started as, as, you know, technical assistants and have drifted into really the role of, of running programs, running people. I mean, you, you look at, you look at the organization here at the saints, we have, um, we by and large, we have 58 players and f- roughly 40 staff. So we're, we're, our, our workforce in the rugby department at the Saints is pretty close to 100. Yeah. And so the biggest job for me is to make sure that there are 100 people that have bought into, committed to, and it's all swimming in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And so... That coordination of of uh, all those individuals um, working together for a common cause, for me, is far more important than you know how, how you make your line out function better. That's somebody else's job. So uh, it definitely it definitely becomes more people focused than it becomes the actual sport focused. Unless I've misconstrued what you're saying, you sort of look at your your job in a way as to corral everyone into the same direction. And then you can actually delegate, you know, line outs and backs moves and some so on to others. Well I think it I think it every situation every situation is different and I think um when you when you're working with other people, particularly in a in a an area of potentially an area of leadership where you're strong and you have good people, you can empower and, and, and let those people um, do their thing without micromanagement where, where you're not so strong. um, You perhaps have to have a different focus um, to make it work. So at the end of the day, the boat will need something to go faster. You've got to work out, you know, what is the limiting factor and go and try and help in that particular area. So if you've got really, really good technical coaches, uh, you can you can spend less time on the grass and less time working around the, the game. If you've got a very, very young group of coaches, but you've got an unbelievably efficient and experienced manager who's really good at managing the program, then you can probably afford to spend more time on the grass with the coaches and let him run the program more. So every group of individuals is different. And I think part of the really exciting challenge of working with, in my situation now with a hundred people is where's, where's the next edge? Where's the next advantage? What, what do we need to do to, to get better performance? And your, I guess, your role in that is to lend your weight in whichever direction that you feel it, feel it's needed. Then, yeah, and it, it's not about it's not about me, or it's not a, it's not a, it's about the competence of the other people. So, those that need help, you either need to find 
a way of helping them through yourself or through somebody else. Those that have a high level of competency and and stuff themselves, then you've just got to make sure that they're pointed in the right direction and and, and everyone's in behind them. So yeah, it's uh, it's what makes it so much fun really is that the challenge is to make sure that um, that she's swimming along nicely. So just on that then, um, we spoke, well, you mentioned early, earlier on something about philosophy. Uh, do you think you could encapsulate your philosophy now or is it still con- constantly evolving? Do, 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 do you have some core principles that, that you adhere to? Uh, yes, yeah, you do. And, you know, I think they they bend around in the wind a little bit again to the team and the group that you've got. Um, but, you know, every, every coach, every coach and every player will have a, a line or a line or a stick in the sand around things like, um, you know, performance versus outcome. So, you know, for, for, for some coaches and some players, they're not the least bit bothered by, the the product or the game or the performance all they care is that they want to win Uh, other people are a little bit more well yes it's nice to win but 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 as long as we're growing and developing or as long as we're entertaining or as long as we you know so in the end high performance sport is about competing and competing is about winning you can't get away from that but philosophically things like uh enjoyment um things like um contribution things like um having f- uh, honesty um you know all those sort of things at some point in time you'll get challenged in your environment around where those things sit philosophically um with you mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting to say that because i've got a sort of aversion to all those words uh, and it's not because i don't believe in them but I almost think when you're coaching that if you have to say those words, you might not be doing your primary job. They're sort of like an outcome rather than your starting point, if that makes sense. Uh, I think that's that's pretty true. Uh, and, you know, one of, one of my favourite sayings is a culture of discipline requires no rules. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's actually quite good. Yeah, that's actually very good. Yeah, and... You know, at the end of the day, we, we have a saying here around Saints First, and it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty fundamental. But you know, if it's if it's good for the organisation, do it, and if it's not good for the organisation, don't do it. And that sounds sounds pretty loose, but at the end of the day, I have enough trust and belief in the in human beings that actually they know what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. The question is whether they're controlled and disciplined enough to make those decisions relentlessly. And and that's the challenge for us all. You know, really, you know, you know whether you should be putting your finger in the cookie jar or not, or yeah. having another beer or not, or going for that run or not, or writing that program or not. You know, you you know you know what you need to do and it's your adherence to or commitment to that, that I think, you know, is, is the challenge for everybody. So just uh, in your time at Saints then, 
how did you go about persuading? I, I don't know if persuading is the right word, actually. But how did you go about installing the things that you believe in and making sure that all the other coaches believed in that? Was it a sales process as such? Or did you want to understand the coaches and what they did before you sort of ushered them the way that you wanted? No, I think I think one of the worst things that you can do is come from one environment and and try and impose yourself on that particular environment, particularly when there's a cultural difference. So coaching in New Zealand, coaching in South Africa and coaching in England have all had different cultural bends around them um, that have an impact. And the very worst mistake you can make is to walk into an environment and sort of puff your chest out and say, um, this is how it's done. So the first, the first, um, I had two, two one week visits up here when we had buys and Super Rugby before we we started, and then I came up for the pre season, and most of that time was just sitting back trying to work out what the DNA or culture of the organisation was. Does that marry to the people that existed? And where does that sit fundamentally and philosophically on what I believed? Now, I was lucky enough that um, what I found here was was a lot of things that I that sitted with what I liked. Um, and then it was just making some tweaks to make sure that we, we, you know, all believed in what we were trying to do. So uh, would you mind if I ask them, what did, what did you find when you first uh, looked at Northampton? Well, I think I think one of the cultural things that I've I've found here, without being derogatory about it, is that you know a lot of the rugby players in the UK are risk adverse, yeah. so um, there's a huge focus on. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, being being really accurate and not taking much risk. And so um, so the, the movement to, or the philosophical shift from let's be really, really, really accurate to let's be really, really try and extend the limit of our skill execution under pressure. And if we make the odd mistake, so be it. 
that was a quite a big fundamental shift for a lot of people. So the language typically was when things were going wrong, it was all around becoming tighter, taking less risk, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, I recognize so that. I think, so I think that's that was a – and I, I, you know, I found some boys here that I thought were outstandingly – gifted sportsmen that were very, very capable as, as individuals and very good rugby players, but yet they were constantly playing within themselves because they were worried about, about making mistakes. So of course you can't be reckless and you've got to understand risk and reward and you've got to put it into the context of the game. But um, I, I felt the place lacked optimism, uh, and that was the, f- the first shift that we had to make. That's really interesting. Can, can I just go back to something which you said before about imposing your culture? Because I found uh, this like really interesting ju- juxtaposition. Because the way I think about rugby is fundamentally it's a game about imposing your will. And this is probably why I'm not a DOR and you are. But I always think of the game as being very confrontational and maybe that doesn't translate on the coaching side, but I do think there is an element of, you know, you've got to impose yourself on these players because how do you expect them to impose themselves on others if you don't? See, that's that's part of the other issue is that you've, you've just said that rugby is a game of contact. Yeah. Whereas I believe rugby is a game of space. Uh, okay. Yeah, that, that would so, be a fundamental disagreement there. Yeah. So you 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 need you need to create a contact to create a space somewhere else. But philosophically, and I think this is a massively great question for all teams in the Premiership, and it's also a great question for international teams. As an example, is that if you want to if you want to be better than the other team, you're either going to be more physical more skillful, more relentless, more determined, more whatever. Yeah. And so you've got to work it out. What combination of things do you need to be, um, you know, to get a, a victory over the other side? And, and so if you look at the last World Cup, for instance, England completely and absolutely physically overwhelmed New Zealand in a semi-final. And and then South Africa does the same thing to England in the final. So that that game, that World Cup will go down as a World Cup that was decided on physical physicality and power. Yeah. But if you go back to 2015 or 2011, it might have been decided on tempo and skill levels, for instance. Yeah. So it's all cyclical. Um, you know, the way that Saracens have won many championships here and 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 then Exeter have won some championships here and the way Harlequins were able to win the championship here or premiership here last year required a completely different physiolog- uh, psychological approach, fundamental approach. What you've got to work out with your team is with the cattle, there's an alignment that's required between 
your philosophy of the game, your team plan, your team profile, what what cattle have you got to play the game, and and how are you going to play that game with those cattle? So, you know, we sit there constantly, coaches saying, you know, can we can we dominate them physically? Yes or no. Can we dominate them in the air? Yes or no. Can we dominate them with speed? Yes or no. Therefore, if we've got, we can get an edge here. We can't get an edge here. We need to change this to get a little edge here. Those are the things that you're doing constantly to try and work out you basically do a SWOT analysis each week. You know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the opposition? Yeah. What are their threats and opportunities? So that's breaking it down as it's just, it's a part of the mind battle. Yeah, that's um, that's a good point, actually, because uh, with the premiership in particular, you can only have one winner. So it doesn't matter what everyone else does. Ultimately, it's going to come to the, you know, the one team, which um, the one team, which wins. So I'm kind of, very easy on the teams that have one style, never change it. So long as they're always top four, I think they've always got a chance of winning the big one. I yeah. think that's the important one. It's been there constantly having a chance. Now, you just mentioned the flexibility. Uh, you know, you do SWOT analysis. What? Uh, how can you beat one team? How can you beat another? Being in the Premiership now for as long as you've been, do you feel that you've got to compromise somewhat with how you build your teams? And are there some things that you won't compromise on and are there other elements of rugby that you just feel, okay, yeah, they're just not that important to me. I don't need X, Y, and Z. Um, Yes, and it is slightly different. It is slightly different in the premiership than it is in super rugby. You know, if you don't have a functioning set piece, um at the highest level, you know, if your scrum's not solid, your line-out's not solid, um, your kick-off receipt's not solid, then you, you're probably going to struggle to to be on the dance floor when it really matters on a regular basis. So, you know, there's core parts of the game, you, you know, and you've always got to have something to hang your hat on. And teams, teams have won championships all across the world by having a great set piece and a great defence, for instance. Yeah. And other other teams have won championships by having, uh, we're a bit loose on defence, but we'll back ourselves for every three tries that they score, we'll get five. So there, 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 there is always more than one way to skin a cat. But, you know, particularly... I mean, the, the the weather here in the middle of winter is not great. The fields are better than they used to be, clearly. But you've got to have a set-piece game. You've got to have a kicking game. You've got to have an aerial game. You've got to have a territorial game. I, I don't think you can be a one-trick pony in the premiership and expect to um, prevail on a regular basis. I'm sure it was I'm sure it was a conversation that I had with you, actually. Did, did you have a... a- Northern Hemisphere coach come down and visit you at the Canes who basically explained something similar which was uh, he felt you did lots of things very very well and then the other things which would tally with the with the Northern Hemisphere not so well yeah uh, we did we had a we had an Irish coach came down at the end of the week with us at the Hurricanes I asked him what he thought and he said you know what you do well you do outstandingly well and what you rubbish at you rubbish and he said, that's very ref- reflective of your week. So, you know, as an example, we put very, very little time at, at that time, we put very, very little time into 
our kick chase game. So, you know, the aerial kicking game that you see a lot of nine kicking for contestable wingers to chase, et cetera, et cetera. That was not a core part of our game at the Hurricanes. And it was actually a weak part of our game. The, re- the reason it was weak is because we didn't find it important. So we didn't practice it. Mm. Uh, but yet our broken field running game was outstanding because we had outstanding athletes that were very optimistic in the way they played in broken field. So, you know, when you've got a when you've got a hooker who's prepared to make a pass to a prop, who's prepared to make a pass to a lock two meters from your own goal line, to put a winger away to score from the other end, is a very different mentality. So we were we were bloody good at what we did. But the stuff that we didn't practice very often, we were pretty poor at. So you've got to, you know, you've got to decide, you know, what's what's really important. And funnily enough, I've already seen one game this premiership, which I, which I won't name, but I've seen one game this season where the team that didn't really want to play much rugby won quite convincingly. The team that wanted was very very much more inclined to try and play um, ended up losing the game quite comfortably because the other team was just prepared to give them the ball, suffocate them out, strangle them and, uh, and reap the ward by either kicking to the corner and driving for a try or kicking a, kicking a penalty. Yeah. And I think the premiership more than any other league highlights the difficulty of prioritizing possession over territory or indeed vice versa. Oh, look, again, it'll come down to your team, the other team, the situation. I mean, philosophically and fundamentally, I struggle with the concept of, you know, the, my first choice is let, let's, let, let's ask you to have the ball and, and try and play with it. Yeah. Um, but there are teams who have been massively successful by saying, we're gonna we're gonna play a very much territorial game, and you can do whatever you like down that end of the field. We're gonna smother you out, and you know sooner or later you're gonna you're gonna you know have a brain explosion, and we're gonna capitalise on it. It's never it's never a game that's really appealed to me, but but there are times in situations where because of the context of the game might be the score it might be the weather might be the momentum of the game where actually you're better off to be let them play the ball deep yeah. inside their half than 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 you have it inside your half so i understand that the game can be won and lost on both sides of the ball but by nature uh, i would rather have the ball to play with than than be trying to knock people over excellent um I won't keep you for much longer because uh, I do appreciate that you're on a tight time schedule. Uh, I think it was what, again, it was one of your press conferences that I was listening to. And you reeled off some statistics regarding the NRL. Uh, I can't remember what they were. And then you reeled off some weights of your pack, uh, particularly your second rows and, you know, what they give you give you and what they don't. Uh, and I was just wondering, particularly on the, on the NRL point, you've obviously got... Um, ideas from other sports so which are your go-to sports to generate new ideas for for rugby um look i think 
you never stop learning your own sport, hundred percent. So you've you've got to take notice of trends and movements inside your sport and and that sort of stuff. But at the at the end of the day, I think there's two parts to it. One is one is the actual technical tactical part of the sport, where you want to get advanced knowledge or understanding, and the other one is really um the culture or ethos uh that that sits in an environment that you're not not um not familiar with that you can bring into a new environment that's something new and fresh so a couple of examples of that is if you're looking at the the breakdown there there are now a number of coaches who have gone into wrestling environments, yeah. judo environments, karate environments, martial art type sports where manipulation of body weight, holds, throws, those sorts of techniques, you can try and apply those back back to your own back to your own sport where you know it's a, perhaps at a higher or deeper deeper level from perhaps a biomechanical point of view. So you can get the technical and tactical part of the game from somewhere else and try and apply it to your own game. So that's one thing. Or you or you get something completely different that's that's not that that's foreign to you that you've never culturally had in your sport that you think, why not? And so the best example of that for me was I was lucky enough um New Zealand Rugby Union is particularly good at supporting its coaches around coach development. And I went on a coach development trip and one of the places we went to was we went to Montreal to the Cirque du Soleil training school in Montreal and had a week <laughs> with the Cirque du Soleil. And one of the things there that that was very obvious was that in their training, they had two very different components of their training one was the very very strict routines around the core basics of their of their sport. Yeah. So the tetherboard, for instance, is the board where you have uh, is a pivot in the middle, and one guy jumps on one end of the board, and the other guy springs up in the air, and he comes down on the board, and the other guy springs, so they go up and down. When they do their tetherboard training, it's all about the jump and the the consistency of the jump and the accuracy of the jump and the accuracy of the landing and the accuracy of the force on the board. So it's consistent. So all, all of their, all of their real hardcore training was based around core basics and the fundamental. And then they had this other session, which they called Jue, which is, which is French for play. Yeah. And that's, that's where they just tried stuff. You know, they tried, Oh, what about if I land this way? Or what about if I do a circle this way? Or what about if I do something? And so there was no emphasis on on outcome. It was just let's go and experiment and play. And so that really struck me that we, when you're talking about fundamental skill development under pressure, we we never really gave an opportunity for our players to really push the boundaries and experiment with their skills uh, and take them to a new level. So we, we've introduced both in New Zealand and here 
times when we, we have Zhue where you can go out and you can practice, you know, a chip and a chase and catching it. You can practice an offload that's outrageous. You can practice um, a pass between your legs that's stupid. You can, you know, and, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. But it's just constantly pushing the boundaries of how how good can I be with my skills under pressure? So that's another example of going outside of your core sport and, and coming back with a, a different way of pack, packaging up your training session with a different emphasis. I absolutely love that. So what, yeah, one of the things I think which is wrong with amateur level coaching around the UK is I think we've taken it too far. I think we've got to the point now where we're talking about play what's in front of you, do what you see, do what you feel right, right with, but ultimately we're missing the core fundamentals i like the idea that you've got your core fundamentals and then at some other time we can do the jue um i yeah it's not dissimilar actually to what google do which is 90 percent is your job and then 10 percent go and do something completely different and see what you find out the the first year i coached in wellington i think in 2003 we had an unbelievably rock star sort of group we had you know manonu tana umanga jonah lomu Christian Cullen, um, Peter Alatini, Lomi Fartel. I mean, we just had some incredible, but every single training session, we would spend 10 or 15 minutes with practicing our core basic catch pass under pressure. Yeah. And so that was the first part. We'd warm up and we'd just, just see how good we could, we could, catch pass accurately, quickly, with no time and space. And we just, that core basic, we did every single training session, every training session. And at the end of the day, um, I think the difference between a good player and a great player is they execute their core basic skills well under pressure regularly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think you need all of that, and then you can add the X factor. But you can't start yeah, with the X factor. Hundred yeah. percent. Just uh, just on just on that training dy- dynamic there. Do you, do you think it gives players a, a lot more comfort if you say some look? We are doing the you know the core stuff now, but hey, for this ten minutes, go wild, do 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 whatever you want, rather than you know have it you know have it sort of eighty twenty throughout. Well, I think the clarity of what the outcome required from training is 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 good to understand so we we subscribe different names um to our training sessions on whether the judgment of that training session is based on um accuracy is it based on completion rate is it based on you know, fun, is it based on speed, is it based on intent? So most of the time people know that this block is a, whatever the, the word is, block, and therefore it's all about precision, accuracy, whatever. This block is a is a different focus on this block, and so we'll judge this block on on how fast we can do it or or how outrageous we can be or whatever. So... I think if you look, if you if every session you do inside your session is looking through the same lens, uh, I think that's wrong. I think you've got to understand which lens you're going to judge the outcome of the session on. 
Chris, I found all that absolutely fascinating. But, unfortunately, I'm a man of my word, and I told Jack I would let you go at exactly 16.50, because I understand that you, are, that you are very busy. But I would love to do this again some other time, because I have got a lot more questions which I would like, which I would like, like to answer. In fact, I don't even think we've uh, got through half the questions which I had planned for today. So, uh, thank you no so much, and okay. uh, best of luck for Friday. My pleasure. Thanks, my pleasure.